0: Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. National Astronaut Day commemorates the first U.S. spaceflight, Alan Shepard's historic suborbital mission on May 5th, 1961. It's a relatively new day of recognition, first celebrated in 2017. So what better time than now to share the experiences and insights of another decorated astronaut, also famous for a number of firsts. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. This is ground control to Major time. You've really made the grave. Colonel Chris Hadfield's recording of David Bowie's Space Oddity has racked up more than 51 million views on YouTube. But the Canadian pilot-turned-astronaut has accomplished many milestones, flying three missions to orbit, helping build two space stations, and commanding the International Space Station. He was the first Canadian to conduct a spacewalk, temporarily going blind in the process. And in retirement, equally prolific. Professor at the University of Waterloo, an advisor to SpaceX and Virgin Galactic, chair of the Open Lunar Foundation, and author of a best-selling thriller, The Apollo Murders, for which Hadfield is currently penning a sequel.
1: During my first spacewalk, when I was, I was like the lead spacewalker. You know, I'm out there and I've been working on it for years and years. And partway through it, suddenly something horrible got in one eye. And I didn't know what it was. But one eye, you know how when you get something like a bug or some soap or something in your eye, how it's, it's kind of your whole life now focuses on that one eyeball because there's so many uh, pain nerves, I guess, in there. And uh, and there was something in my left eye and it wouldn't let me see out of it. So I was sort of having to keep it shut. But I, I kept on working because I was outside on a spacewalk. But then the tears don't drain because there's no gravity. Mm. So, the, whatever that contamination was got bigger and bigger. The, the tear flowed across into my other eye. And now both of my eyes were contaminated. And so neither of my eyes could see. So, yeah, um, bad stuff happens. During my first spacewalk, I, I was blinded. And it was only after a while of my tears sort of evaporating and the stuff, whatever it was, crusting out as yes. it evaporated. That I could start to see again, and having to work with mission control and open my purge valve to let fresh oxygen evaporate it. So you know, listening to my oxygen hiss out into space was a pretty tense time. Um, So dealing with fear is really important. How to not let it cripple you? How to recognize that? Hey, every time you close your eyes, you're you're blinded for a while. You don't die. You know, just recognize. Mm -hmm the reality of what's going on and don't don't let fear uh keep you from doing the things that you want to do but at the same time don't let fear become sort of straightjacket, immobilizing thing that um that that curtails your your imagination as well respect it learn the skills but uh but don't let fear dominate your life
0: i feel like we've started with some of the gnarly stuff about traveling to space but tell me about some of the cool stuff <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> On that same spacewalk, uh, if, if you can believe it, Morgan, um, on that same spacewalk, we were on the dark side of the world. You're going around the world uh, 16 times a day. So if you think about it, you get sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset. And every 46 minutes you get one of those. And, but that means about half the time you're in the shadow of the earth, mm. in, in the dark. And while you're in the dark, you can see all the cities and everything, it's beautiful. But while I was in the dark uh, during my first spacewalk, we actually went way south. We were south of Australia, south of Tasmania. and incredibly enough, we went through the Aurora, through the southern lights, while I was uh-huh. on a spacewalk. And, the, and the, you know, they look nice in the pictures, you know, green, a little bit of red. When you're in them, you know, you're you're flying in a rainbow, and there's not just green and red, your eye picks out these other gases that are fluorescing, and, and and it's just unbelievably gorgeous, you're, you know, you're surfing on the world's aurora, and for real, some, you know, this is happening to you as a human being, it's just overwhelmingly um, vivid, gorgeous, and, and, and memorable, something, I'm glad I have the rest of my life to just to try and think about how magical that was, and integrated into everything else that I
0: do. Mm, I, I'm like getting goosebumps listening to you speak right now. And the fact that, and I know we have a ways to go, but the, the way, the way the economics of spaceflight and human spaceflight are trending, I mean, it is slowly but surely becoming more accessible, more affordable, more mainstream. But what do you think it takes to get there for it to become actually commonplace?
1: Well, it's radically dropping in cost right now because of advances in technology and better computers and all the work that and the money that we've put into NASA for the last you know 60 years. All of that is coming together now so that some private companies can build rockets that are radically cheaper and safer and simpler than anything in the past. And as soon as you radically make something cheaper, it, it shifts the whole commercial market. Right. And and um, and there's a transition period, and and some things will always be too expensive to you know put on an airliner or 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 whatever. You'll put them on a barge. And that'll be true of space. Some things will always be impractical to launch from the earth and go to space. But there's a lot of things that are practical now: little stuff, little satellites, cubesats, and and you know, GPSs and and doves with planet labs and understanding the whole world and and telecommunications and internet from space, that's all happening right now. And we're sort of just nibbling at the edge now of being able to have uh, space tourism. It's still you know, expensive and, and we haven't regulated it right yet. Sort of like aviation was in 1920, but mm-hmm. it's coming. And, and it'll be interesting to see where it settles out and we've got to get the right rules in place and you know, do what makes sense long-term. But that's where we are, it's this radical shift of, you know, where someone like, you know, Sarisha Bandla, who was born in India, came to the United States to try and succeed. She had a chance to fly in space. And Wally Funk, who probably would have been a NASA astronaut, but, you know, the, the whole male-female thing in the early 60s that just wasn't going to happen. But she now has had a chance to fly in space. So to me, that that's a pretty interesting development also.
0: You are an advisor for Virgin Galactic, also for SpaceX, I believe. Um, yeah, what are the I, types I, of com- conversations you're having with these companies?
1: I work with a bunch of different space companies j- just because, you know, I started as an engineer and then I, I was in aerospace. I was a, a fighter pilot in the Cold War, you know, like a not active combat, but intercepting Soviet bombers. And then, and then I was a test pilot, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy. And then I was an astronaut for 21 years. So with all that background, I end up uh, sometimes having something worthwhile to say talking to uh to uh, <laughs> space companies. And and so, yeah, I work, I'm on the board of some and I'm an advisor to some and, and I work with a bunch and then I work with a bunch of fledgling companies. So yeah, I talk to a bunch of different companies and a lot of different ideas. And it's fun and interesting, especially because space flight is in such transition right now.
0: Hmm. Do you see it as a new space age?
1: Well, space age is still pretty new. Like when I was born, nobody had flown in space. Like. Hmm. Space Spaceflight's younger than I am, and you know I'm old, but I'm not that old. You know, so so it's pretty uh, pretty incredible to think just how new a space age is. And we get bored easily, right? I remember seeing a thing about how when Wi-Fi first made it onto airplanes, and everyone was like, "Wow, there's Wi-Fi in airplanes." And then a week later, if you didn't have Wi-Fi in an airplane, you were like irritated, like, "Ah, oh, no Wi-Fi in this airplane." People just your level of expectation, <laughs> of the bar is always shifting. And so, yeah, that that's normal human behavior, our natural impatience. But I think we are at a new threshold of what's happening in space, and it's driven by human ingenuity and and capitalizing on the huge amount of learning and understanding and investment that that's come over the last decades, so that now we can do it like we've never done before, and uh, and it's it's opening possibilities that that give us options we we just never never considered. Hmm.
0: The fact that you are working with an incubator and some of these very new, very fledgling companies and and entrepreneurs that basically just have an idea in place, how do you decide who to work with? And I guess, how long does that process take? Because it's like the old saying, you know, space is hard. It's very capital intensive. It takes time. It takes resources. I help
1: run a big international technology incubator. Uh, It's called the Creative Destruction Lab. I love the title creative destruction that's, lab. That's <laughs> um, the idea being that if if there's a radical technology shift, like going from a pencil to a pen, or uh, uh, I don't know, horses to a car or, or whatever, um, when there's a radical technology shift, then that's like creative destruction. And then how do you study it? And how, how do you then create a company that can really um, take advantage of that and provide something in a profitable way that we've never had? so in space that's happening right now and so i lead the space stream at creative destruction lab and it's across the united states and in canada and europe and what we do is we open it to the whole world hey if you got a cool idea let us know and and you know hundreds and hundreds every year apply thousands over time now of course and then we filter through them and some of them are just crackpot ideas and some of them are just way too early or some of them, the people are not the type of people that are actually going to be able to turn this into something, but we get a lot every year where you got that sweet spot of a really cool idea and maybe the right time in history for it. And someone who's willing to put a lot of sweat and and tears into it. And, uh, and then just like any tech incubator, we try and give them the, you know, the engineering technical support Mm -hmm. and we give them the the management and and building a business support, and then we give them the venture capital and, and financing access. And we've had some terrific, you know, unicorn kind of successes. And, and it, it becomes even more and more fun every year because as soon as you keep dropping the cost of launch, then that just opens up more things that, that are possible. And um, you know, it's 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 not perfect, and th- things don't always work out the way you want. But uh, but it, it gets so many people involved, and when you build a lab like that, it brings people together that otherwise wouldn't be talking to each other. You know, researchers mm-hmm. in Paris and Atlanta and Toronto and and all, all of us, you know, uh, coagulating the thoughts and, and trying to, uh, create something that otherwise would never have happened.
0: You're commander of the ISS. You've, you've, and actually you've been involved, I believe in, in, in the building out or the operating of two different space stations. We've now got that being extended by NASA until the end of 2030, but there's this commercialization of low earth orbit that's happening in general. And now you have all these private companies that are getting money to develop new space habitats. I wonder, I wonder how you think all of this continues to evolve, what this looks like, how it's different than your experience living in Earth orbit.
1: I, I think it is a really healthy and natural progression. Um, you know, at first it was impossible and then it became just barely possible if you were, had uh, a vast amount of national wealth and people who were willing to die in the effort. And that was you know the original mercury and gemini and soyuz and apollo crews, and um and they push back the edges of our ignorance you know uh, an unbelievable distance uh but that was really the job of, of an exploration scientific agency like nasa uh, but after a while you start to understand it better and then the rockets get cheaper and we we know what we're doing and then it's like okay let's try and build this crazy thing, International Space Station. And it takes 25 or 30 years, but finally, you've shown the world, hey, this is how you do this. Mm -hmm. You know, this is how not only you build it, but this is the purposes it can serve. And this is how to operate it for decades at a time. And then businesses can come in and look at all that and go, hey, you know, I don't want to run a big International Space Station, but there's a piece of that that makes economic business sense for me. And, And so NASA... Uh, as you say, we've got a long-term plan for the International Space Station, um, but they also have plans for at least four commercial space stations between now and then to, to move into that space, which makes it sort of like uh, in airplanes used to be just crazy and dangerous and no one could you know, count on them. And then airlines were just sort of starting, but eventually it got to the point that it's no longer barnstormers and you know stunt pilots were the only people flying now it's like it's kind of boring you know it's like a flying bus and and we've turned it over to the commercial market aviation is a big commercial market and that's that's natural and we're in the process now of turning low earth orbit in over to the commercial market and we need you know the equivalent of the faa and all the the uh, you know all the international organizations like ko and such those have to work for earth orbit, but that frees up the rest of the universe mm-hmm. so that nasa can can pay attention to that you know the moon and all the things that we still have to discover and then learn and prove there and then eventually going even further up to mars and you know the james webb telescope which is just going to come operational here shortly and and you know drilling down into mars to see if we're alone in the universe and everything that lies beyond. So I I think it's nice to have this handoff of low earth orbit that's just in the process now from a place of pure exploration, government scientific research now to uh, to commercial uh, development.
0: Do you think we colonize Mars or at least send humans to Mars in our lifetime or is it still much further away than people realize.
1: Well, you're, you're, a, you're a lot younger than I am, but, um, so here's <laughs> lifetime time you're talking about. Uh, okay. right <laughs> now with, with the rockets that we've built, it's possible to get to Mars. Absolutely. Especially if you look at what SpaceX is working on, but even in the sixties, I mean, we knew how to get those big Saturn V rockets and little capsules in the end. We knew how to get them to Mars and back, but it was wildly expensive and incredibly dangerous. And so if you're going to do something where you're going to kill a lot of people and it's going to cost a lot of money, then you've got to be able to answer the question, well, why are we doing this? Mm. Why? If, if it didn't cost much and no one was at risk, then sure, we'd do it. But we're not at that stage. And with the engines that we have right now, it's still very, very dangerous and a huge number of unknowns to go to Mars. So I think the pattern that, that we're going to follow here, Morgan, is uh, Earth orbit. We've conquered. We've been living there for decades, so we know how to do that. The moon we just literally scratched the surface. So, and the space—all the space agencies of the world, and the private companies, even venture capital right now are, are heading towards the moon, and, and the, the vast, you know, geologic resources—or it's not geologic, right? Because that would be Earth, the the rock. Anyway, the selenologic—I don't know—but um, um, the uh, the stuff that's under the surface of the moon, you know, we 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 hardly even know. So, so there's a va- and there's a, no life at all, but there's vast reserves of water. So I think what's going to happen is we'll be able to transition from a more commercial uh, Earth orbit environment to an exploration and early, uh, very complex settlement of the Moon. Slowly building more and more commercial capability there, and we'll learn enough there eventually and continue. To rapaciously and relentlessly invent, so that we'll be able to figure out how to get not just our machines, but uh, some of our early explorers to Mars, and, and that you know that's how we got to everywhere on the surface of the world, and it's how recently we've started getting to space. You know, that that's not about to suddenly stop. Um, and the real question is, can we make it simple enough and safe enough so that therefore it's cheap enough that it's worth doing? And you know that's where we're heading.
0: Hmm which of course goes back to, I want to get into the people piece of this, but first it goes back to the regulation piece because um, when it comes to human space, like commercial human space flight is very minimally regulated right now by the FAA. And I suspect that'll change in the next couple of years to the point you were making earlier. Um, But then also like on a global stage, we have a treaty in place that's how many decades old now? Um, (laughs) Are we going to have to see more, I guess, deal-making or I don't even know what the word is, multilateral bargaining um, to be able to make all of this happen
1: well if if the covid pandemic teaches us one thing it's that you know people have sort of a very uh self-centered outlook you know and and sort of a selfish view on the world and even if you know the science says this you can't force an individual necessarily to follow what seems like a good scientific idea people are just people and and that's not going to change and it it's to our huge advantage uh, overall. Um, You know, I've got my own very strong feelings about pandemics and such, but but I'm also a realist. And and so um, when you look at how are we going to be doing this in space, yeah, we need, just like, you know, when Henry Ford first released the Model T in like 1908, it was mayhem on the New York City streets. You know trams and horses and horse crap, and now these cars and no gas stations and no stoplights. You know what do you do? And you have to sort of play catch up with the regulation. Until now, it's just sort of transparent. Um, and a car on the road is you know is the big disruptor now. And we need to bring that into space flight. And who is going to regulate it? And you're right. Back in the late '60s, there was a big fear. About nuclear weapons being put into space, and that was enough of an inspiration for some of the pretty strong Cold War combatants—the Soviet Union, United States, lots of other countries—to sign uh, an agreement. You know, the the you know, the the international agreement that's at the United Nations that that kind of constrained everybody's behaviors, but it's very vague, and it sure doesn't say. You know, uh, it doesn't properly to illegally defensible way define like like property rights on the moon if someone discovers something of great value on the moon then how are we going to act when, once we have that piece of knowledge you know how do we behave whose laws do we follow all of that and and so the real question is um how quickly can regulation keep up with technology uh, as it gets commercialized but then also um, how willing are individual people to work on it and to fight for it, and to and to prioritize the short term versus the long term, much as you know many of the of the big public issues and the tragedies of the commons. Um, and just on a personal note, uh, I'm the chair of the board of the Open Lunar Foundation because we're we're addressing property rights and um, and you know interoperability. Wouldn't it be stupid if we got to the moon and you went over to the neighboring moon landing place? and they didn't have any wrenches that fit what you, what you needed, or your yeah. plumbing fixtures, or if you tried to plug into their electrical system, it didn't match yours, you know, it just, we, we can surely do better, you know, that than maybe some of our legacy problems on earth. And so the Open Lunar Foundation is working really hard on that, trying to bring people together, especially since now we're in the early days to get as many commonalities and. some some common definitions of right and wrong, you know, as we start to settle places beyond Earth.
0: That's really cool. How's that process going?
1: Uh, It's going well. Uh, We've done um, uh, an interesting process recently, where uh, kind of pushing the issue by uh, buying lunar soil. Because if you start getting into purchasing uh, if a company manages to build a rover and it takes a scoop and holds out a scoop of lunar soil and you buy it from them, even if that's largely symbolic, it now forces the regulatory issues to play fast catch-up. Like, okay, do I own this piece of the moon or not? And and what am I allowed to do with it? And what are the precedents I'm going to set by by now owning that bit of soil that's still on the moon? And, and so the the whole uh, trust of that, It's it's one of the things that That we're working on but our motivations couldn't be higher and we're working with multiple governments around the world and working with the united nations but uh it you know like like everything else it's imperfect and it takes a lot of uh two steps forward and one step back but if you don't take those steps then things are just going to unfold maybe in a way that you truly regret when when you look at the the clarity of hindsight
0: Yeah, I mean, it It seems it seems so obvious and so crucial. Um, and it's kind of amazing that you're tackling this and, and in some ways that it hasn't been tackled before when you do have something like an Artemis program, you know, from NASA and obviously China and so many other countries now looking to go to the moon in a more permanent way. Um, I do I said I wanted to give the people piece of this. And before you wrap it up, I do. And that is just a little bit about your trajectory and what folks who may be especially young folks who might be aspiring to become astronauts or travel to space one day what they should keep in mind about that process and whether that process is changing from your from your time going through training
1: on the professional astronaut side there is still enormous interest and and we have the then the luxury of choosing some really impressive human beings who then are gonna get the responsibility of being those first uh, semi-permanent explorers on on the moon and beyond. And and we need that type of guts and and willingness to take a risk and and, uh, sort of academic and technical capacity, proven capacity. So there's that whole professional astronaut exploration side of things. But as Earth orbit becomes more and more commercialized, there's going to be the whole new category of commercial astronauts. You know, whether you're like the folks at Virgin Galactic uh, who, who fly the vehicle up to the bottom of space and back down again so you know that's you're sort of like an airline pilot there a very complicated vehicle but still uh, that's a new type of astronaut and then there's one of the SpaceX vehicles going up to the space station and back completely run by a commercial company and they've got one experienced astronaut on board his name's Mike Lopez Alegria he's a classmate of mine. Uh, out of uh, astronaut class. and uh, so what type of astronaut is he now? he's He's like a flying, he's another form of commercial astronaut, but going up to the space station, sort of like in the movie two thousand and one. and and so if you want to be one of those people, you could look at what skill set they have. Mm. or there's just the straight experiential side. And that is, I want to go be a tourist in space, and then I just need to make a bunch of money. Or I just, I don't wanna be a pilot and a test bomb, but I wanna be a researcher living on board a space station. And that is gonna be another career choice of how to live and work in space. And eventually we'll need people, once we get some infrastructure built, to be the original you know, settlers for, for maybe a week or two weeks or a month or six months, like like we did in Antarctica on the moon. And that's coming soon as well. So all of that's, happening right now uh, in amongst all the other noise of, of day-to-day life on the world. And, and to me, that that's kind of an exciting time to be alive. Oh
0: yeah. Chris, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Congratulations on the latest book and on all of these other incredible milestones and in everything you do for this industry and the people touched by it on a daily basis. Chris Hadfield. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by searching Manifest Space wherever you get your podcasts and by following the Squawk on the Street podcast. For more on the Space Race, be sure to watch Squawk on the Street on CNBC. I'm Lauren Brown.
1: There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery.